Y'all, let's, uh, gosh, one more note on the 14 years, all right? There, there are a couple folks in the room who have been here for 14 years and just want to acknowledge them. Uh, Ms. Carolyn Martin, back here, our Director of Operations with us at the beginning. Whew. Gosh, and she's still willing to hang around, not just hang around, but work with us um, on this mission Y'all, Mallory Wesner, where you at, Mal? (laughs) She just snuck out off the stage. She will be back, but y'all, give her a hug, too. 14 years. Matt Leroy, in the house. Yes, from from the beginning. Matt had a vision a long time ago, (laughs) y'all. Way before 14 years for what this crazy thing might look like. And so, sure enough, sure enough, here we are. I'm so grateful for you, man. Thanks for being with us today to be a part of this celebration. All right, onward, onward, (laughs) before I start crying again. Um, Yo, I'm so grateful to have a teaching team here at Love Chapel Hill. Yo, uh, Pastor Joel bringing us into this series on the first three pages, yo, this series, first three pages of the Bible. Here we are. No big deal, right? Just the first three pages. Not much going on there. Joel introduced us exceptionally well to chapter one. And past week, last week, Pastor Allison walking us into page two of Genesis, of the Bible. And so today, um, another member of our teaching team, of which many of our teaching team are in the house today, uh, Elena and Chris, and also super grateful for Val and, <laughs> and uh, for Caleb Maxson. Y'all, it is, is an amazing team of folks, but Chris, in all of his encouragement today, as he walks around the corner, he's like, he's like, Genesis 3, good luck. (laughs) I feel the love. I feel it. Y'all, the first two pages have been amazing. Joel and Allison walked us through this perfect, perfect view into creation as God intended it. This perfect alignment of creation and the creator. Beautiful, beautiful picture of God creating his dwelling place to be in the midst of the creation. And so today, just as a heads up, things are going to take a turn. Kind of a big one. But before we get there, I want to pray this Genesis prayer together. And y'all, a huge shout out to Pastor Joel, who is a liturgist and taking words to lead us into the Genesis story, the story of God's love for us. He wrote this prayer, and you may not know it, but he's often fashioning and crafting the calls to worship and other prayers that we are reading through the service. So y'all, let's give it up for Pastor Joel. The prayer for this series is just fantastic. So y'all, let's, let's join in this prayer together. Lord, lead us to embrace your story of love, rescue, and redemption for all our beloved creation. 
open our hearts to feel your everlasting, loving pursuit to lead us to where heaven and earth align. We are your church, your people, exploring the mystery of you found in the beginning of your word. Amen. Amen. So y'all, just a reminder, there are handouts in the back, literally the first three pages of the Bible printed for you. Page one, page two, and today we are finding ourselves in page three. And it is a lot, so I recommend if you don't have one of these yet, go ahead and grab one. You can grab that from the table in the back over there. We're going to be reading it together in just a moment. Um, and I say reading it together. I'm not going to expect you to read the whole thing with me, okay? Like you can read along with me. It's doing that in unison. We might be here a while. But y'all, just a quick survey of the headings of this section from different translations of the Bible. In case you don't yet know what we're in for, looking at the, just the headings, just that bold heading that is actually not scripture, but how interpreters and translators over time have given a label to this particular section of scripture. The first sin and its punishment from the NRSV. The fall of mankind from the New American Standard. The fall from the NIV and the ESV. The man and the woman sin from the New Living Translation. Expulsion from Eden, the New American Bible. The Terrible Lie from the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite interpretations. So that's what we're in for. Um, again, I hope you still have your seatbelt on because um, we might need it. We're going to read this. You can follow along, but just let these words just speak to your heart today. Receive this word from the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you, eat, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The woman, he said, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. And for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam and his wife Eve named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let's go ahead and say from the very start here, if you've read this before, if you've heard the story, then likely you are bringing some baggage, some interpretation that is stuck with you, and I just want to encourage you to open your ears, open your heart to what God wants to say today. Second, acknowledging we will not get to every question that you have about Genesis 3 today. My clock is already ticking. <laughs> There's... There's more about this that we don't know than what we do. And we have to join with the ancient reader to be okay with the mystery. The mystery of God. We have to embrace it, especially as we read these first three pages, but also as we move on from this place to help with some of the questions that we're not going to get to, or to go to deeper places with some of the things that we are going to talk through. Y'all, on the teaching page, there are resources upon resources upon resources that we have dug into as we've been in this series. Um, I want to encourage you, take the time to go deeper. If you have questions, or there are things that you're like, I want to know more about that. I want to encourage you on the Sunday page, lovechapelhill.com slash Sunday. If you scroll to the bottom, there's the teaching section. There are links to videos. There are links to articles, commentaries, 
from our friend Tom Wright, Bob's friend Tom Wright, um, (laughs) um, from one of mine and Matt's favorite Old Testament professors, uh, Dr. Sandy Richter, and the Epic of Eden, her book there. And then our dear friends at the Bible Project and Dr. Tim Mackey, you will see lots there. But even beyond that, I want to encourage you to reach out. If you're in a small group, that's a great place to be talking about these things. But also you can meet with any of your pastors. You can reach us also on the website. All of our contact information is there. Joel and I even have scheduling widgets. You just go pick a time that you want to sit down with us. We would love to talk with you more. As we dig into this, we're going to take a 4D look at page 3 of the Bible. I don't think these are 3D glasses because we're going to need 4D glasses, all right, y'all? Um, also, a note, I forgot, there's going to be cupcakes in the lobby after. It's, my ADD is kicking in you know, on the way out. <sighs> so 4D, deception, distortion, discovery, deliverance. Y'all, say this with me. Deception distortion, discovery, deliverance. Y'all, deception that becomes distortion, that leads to discovery, that then opens the door for deliverance. This is where we're going over the next 20-ish, 30-ish minutes. Notice what we have unfolding in verses one through five, the story of deception. The serpent more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. So the serpent, some translations say snake. You might have that in front of you if you're reading on your phone or in your Bible. And so this might be the place where we have the inclination to wrestle with a talking snake. (laughs) Not going to do that right now. But to keep our eye on the prize of answering these questions of who is God and what is our relationship to God, we want to look deeper at this word serpent. With the great help of our friends at the Bible Project, we can do that. This word here that is present, nakash, in the Hebrew, it can mean serpent, it can mean dragon, it can mean sea monster. Snake doesn't quite get it. (laughs) Serpent, dragon, sea monster. It's used in those three different ways, multiple places in the Old Testament. But it's used specifically in Isaiah 27 in all three ways. So this one word is used all three ways in Isaiah 27. We'll soon see that this created rebellious being is an adversary to God. An adversary that is set out to bring chaos into the good order of creation. The emphasis here on creature. Because here, in this first verse, we see that this being is a part of the created order. Not an equivalent to God, not a rival to God. As Isaiah 40 tells us, God has no equal. God has no rival. 
He is the Almighty. We don't know exactly where this creature came from or how it got in the garden. But what we do know is that it is up to no good. It is trying to bring others into the chaos of rebellion. So the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Hmm, is that, is that what God said? (laughs) The crafty way that the rebellious being asks the question to paint God the creator in a light that says he's trying to hold something back. This authoritarian that is handing down this command to you is trying to keep you from the good stuff. Just with one question. And so the woman said to the serpent, we can eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Again, is that what God said? Let's back up and take a look where we find God speak this command in Genesis 2, 15. You can flip back to page two in your handouts. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Does God say anything about touching the tree? Just at the very presence of the chaos monster, the serpent, there is a distortion that comes. Even at the very presence, confusion begins to settle in to the woman's mind. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Can they get any more like God than what they are right now? We saw in Genesis 1, created in the image of God. They're as close to God as it gets. And yet, the tempter here tries to say there is something more, knowing good and evil. This is where making notes of curse words in my um, uh, (laughs) notes is dangerous. Um, But the daggum serpent um, sows seeds of doubt in the mind. (laughs) Y'all, it's all cuss word worthy, okay? It goes off the rails, And so in order to keep our family-friendly rating on YouTube, because these are live-streamed, I'm going to keep it PG. But it sows the seeds of doubt. Does God really 
love you that much? Does God really care and want the best for you? When they should have been eating from the tree of life all day, every day, instead, the lie gets them to believe that there's greater benefit from trying to be like God on their own. So distortion comes in. Distortion. Anybody listen to AM, FM radio these days? Yeah, like three of us. Okay, great. Um, For those of us who are old folk, um, (laughs) the AM, FM radio, right? My Avery has a clock radio in uh, her room. It's her alarm clock, right? And so it's the kind where you turn the dial as you go through and like you're hearing that and occasionally you hear a little song and you're like, oh, I can slow down, but it's got, got distortion in it. I remember the first time the kids were listening to the radio with me in the car, because most of us, right? Most of us are listening from our phones these days. Not a whole lot of distortion coming through the Bluetooth. But we're listening to AM, FM radio, and the static is coming and going. And they're like, Dad, what is this? That's static, kids. That is the distortion of the radio waves being received by our car. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is the way it used to be. And I still listen to the radio, and I love it. Back porch music, Friday nights, Saturday nights, NPR. No. Anybody else? (laughs) The TV distortion, y'all. Sometimes, again, going back to the old days, my... um, My friends Tim and Jennifer are also from West Virginia, so I can poke a little fun at us in West Virginia. You know, when I was growing up in my grandparents' house, there was no cable. There was an open-air antenna. And so we knew when a storm was coming from the West because the reception from the broadcast of the TV station was not making it to our antenna. You actually turn a little dial in that... um, that open-air antenna would turn a little bit and we could pick up a station from another town. Welcome to the hills and the old days. But the distortion that comes, right, as that storm is rolling in, or that picture just a little fuzzy, not the clear picture that we would want. Okay, the old folks, I've, I've hit you with distortion. Younger folks, maybe this is a little better. The cracked screen on your cell phone. We've been there, right? The distortion of the image is the cracks are going through it. Go to pull it out and take that selfie and it's cracked. The image is distorted. The beautiful image of you distorted by the cracks in the screen. And y'all, sometimes that makes the color off, right? Depending on how deep the cracks are, the color is off on the phone. Distortion, distorted image. So the woman makes the decision to take the fruit. It looks good. She also gave some to her husband. Their eyes are opened. And they find that they are naked. And so they hide from each other, and from God. So jealous. Allison got to preach that they were naked and unashamed part. I didn't get that. I guess. (laughs) 
It's one of the best verses in all of the Bible. And here we are, but they find out otherwise. The distortion comes. And this, friends, is where sin enters into the picture. The beauty from the first two pages is shattered. It is fragmented, such that it is even hard to recognize what it was. To be clear, the word sin does not appear here. The Hebrew word kata doesn't actually appear until page four in the story of Adam and Eve's descendants, Cain and Abel. If you've been around here for a little while, you know that we hold a broad view of sin. Defined something like this. The failure to love and honor God and God's creation. Or anything that keeps us from living in alignment with God's will and purpose for our life. And so that's what we see happen for the man and the woman here. They choose to step outside of God's will for their lives and try to achieve equality with God. And the impact of that is a deep, deep cut. Not one that God is surprised by or caught off guard by. But what is their sin? Eating the fruit? It's bigger than that. It's the power grab to be like God, to think my way is better. This is a shortcut. And that power grab that we see back then is what we see unfolding continually in our midst today. See, pages one and two, they feel a bit foreign to us because we don't know a world like that. But this is the world that we know. where we think our way is better. We think, let me accumulate all the wealth, all the power, that my own desires are better than the desires of the one who created me. And as some of us in the room have friends and family who are in Israel in this moment, It doesn't get any more clear than that. Fear enters in. Death enters into the picture. Our identity is distorted such that we can't see the world as it was intended to be. Where just a few short verses ago, they were naked and unashamed. Now they're hiding not just from one another, but the one who created them. And instead of seeing and knowing their identity as the most beloved of all creation, image bearers of the almighty God, they find themselves insecure and unsure of how to even face the one who made them. 
And we might be tempted to say, well, if God knew it was going to happen, why didn't he stop it? Or how would God allow this to happen? You know, those were not even questions in the ancient reader's mind. For God is God. But God is demonstrating true love for creation here. Who is God? The almighty creator of the cosmos who is soon to be described in the next book of the Bible as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. That it is love without coercion, love without force, God is committed to Adam and Eve, as Tom Wright says, to the Adam and Eve project, to bring, to continue to work through their line to bring about the repair of the distortion. The distortion of your cracked screen on your phone, you have to take it to a repair shop. A repair has to be done. God's plan for Adam and Eve to steward the garden and all of creation got derailed. And I don't know if you've ever seen a train derailment, but the cars don't just pop on track themselves. It requires a slow, meticulous process of a crane picking up car by car the train to put it back on track strength enough to pick them up one by one to put them back on track. And so in discovery, get to verses 9 through 13. And how we read this part really matters. The tone here matters. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked, my child? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, the woman made me do it. <laughs> Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? Please tell me what happened. And so the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Depending on what kind of home life you had, depending on the authority figures in your life, how your parents talked to you, what kind of church background you had or your perception of God. These texts can be, written, can be read very differently. They can be read with domination or terror in the voice. Where did you go? What have you done? I was going to slap the table, but the juice. <laughs> but how we read it, how we perceive God's response matters. What we need to understand is what happens here does not change God's heart toward humanity 
or all of creation. God's heart is not changed toward humanity. or creation in the least. But our decisions and our actions have consequences. Can I get an amen? <laughs> our decisions and our actions have consequences. Who was the first to receive the consequences laid out before them? That's right. It's not the man or the woman. It's the serpent, the one who showed up in the first place to bring about chaos into the goodness of creation. The tempter, the adversary, the deceiver. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. If you think it's a snake, they were already there. Um, but really, the casting down of this being, the clarity that you, the deceiver, the serpent, the sea monster, the dragon, will be the lowest of the low. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. The man and the woman have their consequences also laid out. And y'all, this is complicated, and so it's one of those things that is on the resources page. Because if I went here now, we'd be here another hour. But the pains in childbearing is not what we think it is. In many of our English translations, this lends itself to say, God intends to increase pain in childbearing for women. No. Take a look at the resource on the teaching page. The same language that is used in this place, the same verb for pain, is the same verb that is used down below when God is talking to Adam. And this word lends itself not to pain, but to toil. Toil in the work. And that could be painful, absolutely. But God does not intend or inflict. None of this is God's intent. None of what we see unfolding here is God's intent for humanity. Pages one and two are God's intent. Page three is the unfolding of what happens when humanity takes matters into their own hands. And that is what we see unfolding still before us. On page one and two, we saw blessing, where God intended flourishing humanity to be stewards and partners with God to care for all of creation. But instead, as they choose their own way apart from God, there's curse. 
This word curse in our modern Western context tends to bring up a bit more of the hocus pocus spell cast over something that is going to control it, that is going to dictate its future. The word curse here in the ancient biblical text lends itself to handing people over to the consequences of their own actions. That they try to receive blessing on their own terms, and instead of abundance, what they end up with is scarcity. Where there once was unity and equality between the man and the woman, now there is division and discord. I don't know if you've noticed that in any of your own relationships, that there might be discord and disunity. Once perfect partners, now you're striving for and against each other. Dr. Tim Mackey at the Bible Project says you could call this what's happening here punishment if you want to. But you could also say it is God calling out what is the new normal as the result of humanity's actions. God calling out the new normal as the result of humanity's actions. Let's talk specifically about the mention of work here for just a moment. To be clear, work itself is not the curse. When we read back in chapter 2, verse 15, just a minute ago, God put Adam in the garden to work it, to be a steward over it, to oversee creation and all of its blessing. But the mention here specifically about work, which is the same mention about childbearing for women, is about toil, the fruitless work, where thorns and thistles grow instead of the fruit-laden trees of the garden. The Hebrew word here for painful toil is itzaban. The same word translated in both places that lends itself more to an emotional pain than physical pain. Hardship, worry, anxiety in the circumstances in which we all are born. And as Dr. Sandy Richter points out in her book, The Epic of Eden, the phrase here, sweat of your brow, also not lending itself to physical work. Work was a part of the good created order. But also how we define work depends on who is telling us to do it, right? Here, it is likely a turn of ancient phrase that actually means anxiety and worry. It's not like we deal with that in our world today, though. It's all around us. The effects of the fall. Dr. Richter also describes this shift in verse 19, the shift from Adam ruling over the earth, all of creation, as God's chosen partner, now, humanity, instead, will return to it. We will return to the earth, to the ground. 
Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death enters the picture. And death is something that we all grapple with. Many of us, even in this past year, experiencing the closeness of it. Death is the consequence of humanity's choice to trust not in God's blessing. but to be deceived by the evil one. The choice to trust in God's blessing and following the way of life or the choice to pursue our own way is always before us today. There are two trees for us in the garden. The tree of life or the false tree of life, that of the knowledge of good and evil. The trees are set before us today. The path that leads us straight to the heart of Almighty God or the path that leads us away from God's good will and purpose for our lives. It plays out over and over again in the story of God, working through humanity, through Israel's history, which as we turn the page and we begin to look at our next series that is coming, to dig in to the prophet Isaiah and the story of God unfolding in the people of Israel, we see this same choice over and over again. To choose God's way of flourishing or the way that, our own way that is enduring hardship and consequences. We need a deliverer. We need a rescuer to set us free from this cycle that, <laughs> that we might choose life, finding our way to the garden with the tree of life where we can again live forever in the presence of God. See, the beginning of the story is also the end of the story, but there is a way for us to get there which brings us to deliverance. Land the plane, Simmons, land the plane. Genesis 3, 15. We see the first sign of deliverance where to the serpent, God, God tells this being that the offspring of the woman will crush your head. You'll strike his heel, but your head is crushed. One day, your head will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. So God could have struck them dead on the spot. Isn't that what he said? You eat from it and you will surely die. He could have come up with another plan. But he blessed Adam and Eve. They were God's chosen to bring blessing to the world, and so he committed to working through them to continue a way to bring about blessing for the world. Death has entered in, but not in that instantaneous way we might have expected. And then going on, the last section, that even the ushering out of man and woman from the garden is an act of deliverance. That they're no longer safe in that good place. 
because it's been distorted. Their view of all of it has been distorted. So whether you see it as ushering out or being kicked out or expelled from the garden, there's not life there for them any longer. There's this sense that they must leave in order to move forward. That God is making a way for them even in providing clothes for the journey. God is preparing them. God's love for them has not changed. There are some theologies that want to start here in Genesis 3 or on page 3. We're just sinners. We start as sinners and we're powerless over sin. Well, yes, we are powerless over sin on our own. But God, God's image that we bear, our connection and the longing that we have for the fullness of that identity to reign in our lives is planted deeper down and further back than is the sin nature. That identity has to be awakened within us. And who is it that awakens that identity in us? Insert Sunday school answer. Wow, yes, yes, Jesus. God entering in time and space in the form of a man to show us the way onward to the good garden where heaven and earth again are in alignment. Heaven not just reaching down to earth, but fully coming over the earth. Don't we pray for it each time we pray as Jesus taught us to pray? Who are we in relationship to God? the most beloved of all creation, sons and daughters relentlessly pursued by the unfailing love so that we may ultimately live forever in God's presence in the full overlap of heaven and earth. We see it in every miracle of Jesus told in the Gospels. The overlap of heaven and earth again Glimpses of Eden moments as the veil is pulled back for us. Do you experience Eden moments today? In the thick of the poop storms of life, when we're following the way of Jesus, we can encounter the heavenly realm. We see it in baptism, we see it in weddings. We see it week in and week out when we come to this table to remember Jesus did it. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to break the curse of sin on us. We catch glimpses of it the way it was intended to be from the beginning and the way it will be for all eternity. But we also recognize we're not there yet. We're in a process. And if you're a follower of Jesus, recognizing that things are not as they should be, friends, as you come through the communion line today, I'm going to be right over here. And I would love to just speak a word of blessing over you. I have some anointing oil, and I would love to just simply make the sign of the cross on your forehead 
to remind you of your identity. Your true identity, first and foremost, as a child of God. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus and you are ready to say yes to a better way, we first want to invite you to experience this at the table today, to take the bread and the cup, to remember and celebrate that God took your place. Jesus himself took your place. He gave his life on your behalf. If you are ready to say yes today, as you come through the line, again, I'll be over here, and I would love to meet you and pray with you. You can just say, I'm saying yes. It's that simple, and I would love to pray with you. So friends, I invite all of you to stand where you are, We're going to come to the table and remember what Jesus did on our behalf. That his body was broken for you. That his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. To make a way from that good garden to the good garden again. He is with us in the journey. And so as we come today, we're going to come down this side aisle. Pixie and Beth are ready to serve us. We'll tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And you can make your way along the front. I'd love to pray. Just speak a word of blessing over you. And then you can return to your seats. So friends, we invite you to come to the table. Taste and see that the Lord is good.